welcome to another episode of G220 Radio. This is Ricky Gantz, and we are in episode number 568. Episode number 568. I mean, we are just plowing through these episodes. It's been years. I actually was looking at some of our old shows and, and realizing how far we go back uh, from when we started, how many years have passed. And I'm like, man, we've, we've really been uh, going for a very long time and come a long way from being initially on blog talk radio to now having our shows on YouTube and Facebook live, as well as still putting them up for the podcast. And uh, man, to be 568 episodes in, this is just uh, wonderful and a testament of what we here at G220 radio want to leave for our children. Uh, we know that there are others that find our shows and they listen to the shows and we get feedback from people. Um, but we ultimately look at the legacy that we're leaving that our children I know Mike, who's not with me at the moment, he's trying to get in, having some technical difficulties with his uh, internet. But uh, we are looking at the legacy that our children will be able to go back and look at the things that we have had on this show, the conversations we've had, the guests we've had, and see what it is we believe and know what we believe uh, for many, many years to come. And they'll be able to share that even with their children and their children. And so uh, we just are thankful for the opportunities that we have with these types of uh uh, things that we can put out there like through YouTube and through Facebook live. But tonight we're going to have this show. We're talking about purgatory popes and praying to the saints. And we're having our friend come on the program. Uh, I guess tonight is Steve Christie. He's been on with us before and I'm excited to have him back on the program tonight because this is important for us to discuss. And so we're going to have Steve, come in here and teach us. He's going to lead us in some, some teaching here on this when we talk about purgatory popes and praying to the saints. So, Steve, welcome again back to G220 Radio. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program, uh, and I'm looking forward to this tonight. How you doing, brother? Oh, I'm doing really good. Thanks again for having me back on. And like I always tell people when I've been on for a second time, it just seems like yesterday that I was on. And it's amazing how much time passed. And I just want to say, you know, congratulations on what, 568 episodes. And 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 to be honest, I'm really glad to be part of this because, like you said, we don't know how long YouTube is going to be around in this format. And this could be here long after we're gone. And so I'm really glad to be part of this legacy that you're putting out because you know i've got all the information and and i'm working with you and with mike hopefully he'll be able to get on you know and we will share this information for people that are listening now and in the future yeah and that's the thing too you never know how god may use these platforms that we're, we're able to use now or how long we'll be able to use them only god knows that but yeah. we also we put it up on so you see the videos but we also put it up on uh uh, through uh, Podbean to where it comes out in an audio format for podcast. And you think about this, we've had people who have reviewed things from years ago and they'll say, Hey, I listened to this episode or we'll get a comment because they'll find it on YouTube and it's a topic. Maybe they were searching out and they find it. So who knows, maybe with this purgatory popes and praying to the saints title, uh, they'll be looking for purgatory and this will pop up somewhere in their yeah. uh, search and then they'll listen to it and they'll hear. But brother, I'm I'm thankful that you're on. I'm thankful that you're rocking that Ohio State, uh, you know, shirt there. Um, you know, oh eight, yeah. There we go. And so uh, we are we are thankful to have you on the program, brother. I I we got Joe who's watching. He says he's a former Roman Catholic. So Joe, I hope this will be a blessing to you uh, here tonight uh, as well as the other rest of the listeners. 
And like I said, Mike is not with us at the moment. He's still trying to get in. He's having some internet difficulties. Um, but uh, I think it's really, he's probably just a little worn out because he was at the Ligonier conference this week. I saw the pictures I and everything. That, and I'm yeah, like, that's awesome. Man, Mike, man, just rub it in huh, down there and join the conference. But no, I'm glad he was able to do that. Um, but if he gets in, he'll get in. If not, uh, we'll just keep on pushing through. Yeah. But go ahead, Steve. Like I said, we're, we're going to talk about this. So popes and purgatory. These are important topics that do come up uh, that we have to address and deal with. I don't know if you saw that uh, photo going around of the Pope in this big white coat. I know a lot of people said he was like, um, I don't know. It was a lot of memes I was seeing with this, this big white coat that he was going around. But um yeah, I mean, he, he looked like a cross between the Michelin man. And then there was that one meme. It was from like a kid's cartoon or something like that that was walking around or whatever. And it uh, so it, a little bit of Photoshop there, but it, it was cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the things that people can do with memes is, is hilarious. Yeah. But this is an important topic for us. And, and like I said, we're going to turn this over to you and we will interact throughout the program. But just for you to teach to us, because when we deal with this, we're going to interact with Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. It's a very large um, church with large numbers. And I think Mike might be here with us. Let's see. Mike. Hey, Mike. Hello. All right. Mike is with us. All right. Wonderful. Awesome. So let me try to get this off. I'll get that off the screen in a minute. But, but yeah, so like I was saying, like there's a large amounts of people that are within Roman Catholicism. And so this is a very important uh, for us to be able to interact with our Roman Catholic friends, maybe family members, those who are, are within this, um, you know, church. And so we want to be able to interact with them graciously, lovingly, um, and have truth that we can stand on. Obviously we have the word of God, but it helps us to understand where these, um, doctrines or where these, these things come from with them and, and why they hold to them so that we can better, represent the conversation with them and not misrepresent them in those right. conversations. I think that's always important and which we should always be trying to seek to do is not misrepresent the other side. Cause we don't like that when people misrepresent us as Christians. Um, so, so go ahead, uh, 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 Steve, and we'll turn it over to you. Yeah. And, and just to let your listeners know, you know, Joe had mentioned about being a former Roman Catholic. I was a former Roman Catholic up until just shy of my 31st birthday. And I converted being a Protestant in August of 2004 when the Holy Spirit convicted my heart and I got saved. And um, I have a real desire to reach out to Roman Catholics and witness to them. Uh, much my family is still Roman Catholic, who I love very dearly. A lot of my friends are Roman Catholic who are I look at them as being brothers. I mean, I'm that close to them and I've had lifelong friendship with them. And I always want to make sure to do what the apostle Peter said to always be able to give a defense, but to do so with gentleness and reference. And that's something that sometimes we forget about. And it's important just to, to tell the facts. And it's like you said, it's important to be truthful because if you're not truthful, then you lose credibility with the people who mm -hmm. you're trying to, to reach to. But I, my conversion was strictly theological. I didn't have any bad experiences because a lot of people say that it's because you have a bad experience in the church. I didn't, I had a really good relationship with the priests there. I was the, um, uh, fourth in rank of all the altar boys. I was a treasurer of the Knights of the Altar, and uh, I was elected by my peers. So that kind of tells you a little bit of the dedication that I had. And I went to a college prep um, high school, uh, which was uh, a Roman Catholic college prep school. So it was important and imperative that I was taught correctly what Roman Catholicism 
taught. And then I went on to a Catholic college where I was taught further college level courses in, in the Catholic religion. So I learned some things in there that I didn't learn in um, high school. So I was like the apostle Paul said that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was kind of a Catholic of the Catholics, you know, so mm-hmm. I'm really excited about this. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, I'm, I'm excited to have this on or this topic as well. Um, I thought the, the, the title was very catchy. You sent that to mm-hmm. me, like, let's talk about purgatory popes and the praying to the saints. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is a catchy title, but before yeah. we do jump into that, I do want to reach out here to Mike because I haven't um, talked to you in a minute mm-hmm. there. Uh, I know you've been down there uh, in Florida enjoying the league and ear conference and just, yeah. just a real quick update before we get into this, how's everything going down there with you and enjoying the conference and everything, you know, it's a little jelly here, but that's okay. Yeah, it's been, <laughs> yeah, it's been really good. As you mentioned, uh, my wife and I got to go to the Ligonier National Conference and just experience having that time and being able to listen to godly men speak. Um, they had like Sinclair Ferguson. Um, it's the first time I've heard Vody Balcom live. Oh yeah. So that was pretty cool um, to see him on stage. And just be able to experience and spend too much money on books because that's <laughs> what happens when you go yeah. to a conference like that. And um, yeah, I've got to meet um, a couple different people and kind of be able to walk around a little bit. They had a really cool exhibit on the transmission of scripture. And this organization goes around and shares with it and so it's pretty cool to see some original manuscripts some copies of original manuscripts some facsimiles and stuff like that um and then kind of like discuss about kind of how some of this stuff has been preserved for centuries yeah well that's wonderful brother and i'm glad you're you had a good time and was able to experience that uh wish i could have been there but uh you know yeah (laughs) but uh so this topic that we're dealing with tonight, Mike, uh, Steve's going to go ahead and begin to teach, and we, we're going to interact with him throughout the, the program. But uh, go ahead, Steve. Again, we'll turn it over to you, man. Yeah. yeah. And the main reason I got into this is because, like he says, I was a very devout Catholic. I loved the church. I considered myself a son of the church. But then as after I converted to being a Protestant and I started studying the Bible, I started realizing that a lot of the things that I was taught as a Catholic weren't really jiving with the Bible. And when I got later on into history, I started realizing that when you start going too far back, you know, prior to like the 5th, 6th century, you start seeing that things like purgatory and the concept of the popes and praying to the saints, you don't really see it there, and it's not, or it's not really taught in the same way. And regarding the the pope, that's probably the the big one because the word pope comes from the Latin for papa, and in Greek it's papas. And there were five issues uh, regarding the papacy that I was concerned about that really convinced me that uh, the papacy is not um, biblically or historically supported. For one. Uh, the belief that the Pope is the single and supreme bishop, not just in the Church of Rome, but over all of Christendom. And, and in Vatican I in 1870, which was a universal ecumenical council that's binding to all Catholics, it had affirmed the, the supremacy of the Pope. The second thing was uh, the belief that there's this unbroken succession of bishops since Peter, and they tried to use uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, to support that Jesus gave Peter the keys, and this assumes the the supremacy of Peter, because really without it, the whole system really crumbles. 
The third thing is that the Pope only speaks infallibly when he teaches ex cathedra for the chair of Peter. And this is something that even Protestants and even a lot of Catholics misunderstand about, about what mm -hmm. this means. And I'll go more into this later. The fourth thing is that he's called the Vicar of Christ. The Latin is Vicarius Christi. It literally means in place of. And it's someone who is authorized to act as a substitute for a superior. So the idea that the Pope is the substitute for the superior Christ. And the last thing, and I, and in my opinion, the most important thing, is the belief that salvation is only through the Pope. And these are some of the things we're going to get into when we talk about the papacy before we get into the other two things. But So before I get into whether or not there was a single bishop of Rome, is there any questions or comments that either you or uh, Mike uh, want to make? I, I'm, I'm interested in, in getting into into this teaching and then and also when you spoke about the ex cathedra because I, yeah. I agree i think a lot of people misunderstand that so it's going to be really good to to, to break that down and, and see what is really meant by that um and i think again like you said this idea of peter being the first pope i think that's going to be very interesting to see because when we look at that this when it speaks about peter upon this rock mm -hmm. we always look the, the rome takes that to be you know peter but yeah. Christ is the rock in which our foundation is upon. So again, so much here. I'm looking really forward to, to you laying this out before us. I don't know, Mike, what about you, man? Yeah. Um, you know, you hear these things. I mean, even at the Legionnaire Conference, there's a talk about Stella Scriptura as being the reason why there's so many Protestant denominations. I realize this is not the topic, but, you know, these things are going to come up. And this mm -hmm. was like a college student asking that question. Um, I do think the Pope's is fascinating, especially when there are like three people vying for the top Pope, top position, Bishop. And then you have like four Popes at one time. Like, you know, you just you kind of as Protestants, we kind of look back at this and like, this is just like a mess. Why would anyone want this? And so it's, it is always interesting to see how that doctrine develops. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that. That's referred to, um, as the Avignon papacy and what ended up coming out of that. And you're right. It really was a mess. It was in the 13, 1400s, but so we're going to get there. We're going to cover that. So, so right. the first thing, so the first thing is, was there actually a single Bishop of, uh, in, in Rome in the first century? Well, if, um, you've ever, uh, heard of this book. This is called Eusebius' Church History. It's sometimes referred to as Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History. And what he attempted to do was Eusebius tried to chronicle roughly the first 300 years of church history. It was before the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea in 325, which was convened by Emperor Constantine. So, and we know it was written sometimes before that because he doesn't mention anything about that. So it's, it's, He's considered to be a, a, a reliable historian. He, you know, he not everything that he writes is infallible and accurate, but for the most part, he's pretty accurate. And what's interesting is what he does is um, he references Heraclas, who is the patriarch of Alexandria, an uh, Alexandria of the Coptic Orthodox Church. He had reigned in the third century, and I, and ironically, in Book Seven. He's the only person that he refers to as Pope. He does not refer to the Bishop of Rome as Pope. He mentions him numerous times because by the beginning of the third century, uh, there was a single Bishop of Rome at this point, but he never once refers to himself, refers to him as Pope. And actually, the term Pope very early on in the first few centuries would apply to any bishop. So any low-level bishop 
would be considered a pope. He could be legitimately called that. It was not applied strictly to the Bishop of Rome. And um, newadvent.org, and this is a Catholic online encyclopedia, wrote in an article that as late as the 7th century, St. Gall addresses Desiderius of Cahors as Papa. And as we talked about before, Papa is Latin for Pope. So he was addressed as Pope. Now, the restriction of the term to Pope alone began in the 9th century when it applied to the Bishop of Rome. But it wasn't until the 11th century under Gregory VII when he finally prescribed that it should be confined strictly to the successors of Peter. So it's not until you get to the 11th century that the Bishop of Rome, the term Pope, uh, refers strictly to him. And the 11th century is really significant because this is when the um, church in the East and the church in the West schism and they excommunicated each other. And when that happened, this gave the Bishop of Rome a greater authority uh, than it had previously. But we can go all the way back to the first century. There was a, a letter uh, that was written to the Church of Corinth. It was called First Clement. Clement is not actually the person who wrote it. And we know this because in chapter 42, it talks about multiple bishops, plural. And in chapter 44, it uses the term we uh, frequently in, in the letter. And what's interesting is that it doesn't mention Peter as the bishop there. It mentions Peter and Paul's martyrdom. So we know that it was written sometime after that and most likely before 70 AD, before the temple was destroyed, because First Clement talks about sacrifices in the temple still taking place. So there's a lot of people who think First Clement might have been written towards the end of the first century. Uh, but I take the position that was written sometime before 70 AD because of the mention of these sacrifices still going on. But there's no mention of Peter, and this is significant because this would have been shortly after Peter died, which meant uh, Peter being Bishop of Rome uh, would have been fresh in the minds of, of the writers of First Clement because this was written in Rome to the church of Corinth, but there's no mention of it. Furthermore, as we all know, when Paul wrote writes his epistle to the Church of Rome, he mentions numerous people, but he never mentions Peter once. And Paul is writing at the time that according to um, papal chronology in the Roman Catholic Church, that Peter would have been the Bishop of Rome at, at, at that time. He would have been the Pope, yet Paul doesn't mention him. And Ignatius, who is believed to have been uh, the successor of Peter in Antioch, which we'll get to a little bit later, um, in his epistle to Rome, he doesn't mention anything about Peter either, either, and you would think he definitely would have mentioned it, but there's no mention of that in his epistle. Now, when we advance to the second century, there was an early church father named uh, Hegesippus. What's interesting, he's not considered a saint in the Catholic Church, but if you go on newadvent.org, they actually call him St. Hegesippus, which I find kind of interesting. And when Eusebius uh, cites Hegesippus, he says that Hegesippus had traveled to Rome to see all of the bishops. Now, all of the bishops is plural. He's not saying that he traveled there to see the single bishop of Rome. He saw all of these bishops. So we know as early as the beginning of the second century, there was no single bishop of Rome. And again, Eusebius, we, he advanced to the fourth century. Um, he writes that Clement, who the Roman Catholic Church believes to be the third or actually the first fourth pope, turned over the ministry of the bishops, plural, of Rome to 
I think it's uh, Everestus. And what this, what Eusebius is getting across here is that there was a lead bishop in Rome, but there was not a single bishop of Rome. And as Protestants, we don't really have a problem with that because we know in our, a lot of our churches, there are multiple uh, pastor elders that are there, but there's usually one particular pastor that kind of rises up and kind of leads the church and he does the sermons and stuff and, and unless uh, he goes on vacation or he's sick and then someone kind of fills in. And that's all that Clement really was uh, according to Eusebius. So we do not get a single bishop of Rome roughly till around 180 AD. We had talked earlier about uh, Dr. James White, and he seems to affirm this from his research as well. And from what I've been able to gather, I haven't been able to find any historical evidence of there being a single bishop of Rome previous to this time. So before we go into the Pope being the supreme bishop over all of Christendom. Is there any comments or questions or clarifications from either of you? Mike, do you have anything? <clears throat> so he said Gregory the Seventh. I'm trying to replace this in, in this the map of church history I have in my mind. Yeah, let, that is different than that is different than. Pope Gregory the Great, right. or are those the same? Yeah, he was said Gregory the Great was centuries earlier. I mean, he, I think he was he was actually okay. after Leo the First. Leo the First was in the fifth century. Gregory came after him, so the eleventh century is Gregory the Seventh. Gregory the Great was actually Gregory the First. So yeah, this is long after after uh, Gregory the First. Okay. Okay. So you want now? He's the good. He one of the first ones. Then he, sorry, well, is he one of the first ones? Then then has the Pope. A tie to his name at the as a bishop of Rome, he was the one who said that the term pope should be prescribed strictly and confined strictly to the bishop of Rome. Now there were other people prior to that who had used the term pope to describe to themselves. Um, for example, in the ninth century, there was a, uh, th this is when the restriction really began. Now some people can go back to Leo the first who is using it strictly for himself, but it, that the restriction itself didn't really begin until about the ninth century. And it was finally solidified in the 11th, you know, so you're, you're talking, you know, a thousand years after the time of Peter and the time of Christ. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. So, fascinating. Um, I, I think it's, uh, it's interesting to look at the progression as certain words. I think we've talked about it before, Mike, there's, words that are used in um, church history, like a word for the Trinity being used. But then we see later, not that the doctrine or, or the Trinity was established and become some truth. It was there, but a word was used and then later developed that, that understanding of it. And so I think we're, we, we see that also within Rome is here with Pope is there's a word used to identify this person uh, and then it gets further and further as you go through time, it's developing more and more into what we have even today, where there's this one bishop overall. And I think it's very fascinating too the, the fact of that great schism. And then you have the East and West and you have these two people now that are popes and control, like looking for the power there. Um, but Rome being the one that the Eastern Orthodox are still around, but Rome being the one that, uh, you know, really has taken that over to the Roman, you know, the, the Catholic church, you know? 
Right. And the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople, he would be considered like the lead um, patriarch or, or bishop in Eastern Orthodoxy, but he doesn't consider himself to be a pope in the sense that the that the Roman bishop does. He would actually consider himself to be first among equals. In fact, that's how they had viewed the bishop of Rome to be first among equals because there was actually five different patriarchs, which um, I don't know if I had gotten into that or not. But uh, let me see if I had that. Yeah, I think I'm going to get into that letter. There's actually five patriarchs, and Constantinople was one of them. So they considered the Bishop of Rome to be the first among equals, but they did not consider him to be supreme with ultimate authority over mm -hmm. the rest of the church. And this is what we're, I'm going to get into now about whether or not the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, had supreme was a supreme bishop over all of Christendom. So you guys ready? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Let's go. All right. <laughs> all righty. So um, – in Vatican I, uh, which was convened in the 1800s, it was, I think, 1870, it said that if anyone says that the Roman pontiff, pontiff has not the full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the whole church throughout the whole world, let him be anathema. Now, mm. since Vatican II, uh, Roman Catholics have tried to soften the word anathema down, that it's just a strict penalty and it's and it simply means accursed or excommunication but it doesn't mean eternal damnation and yet this is how the term was always understood throughout the early church in fact up to 784 which is three years before second nicaea convened in 787 which again was another ecumenical council it literally means doomed to destruction that's how the patriarch of constantinople kind of the lead patriarch of eastern orthodoxy uh had defined the term and at this point they had not schismed from the churches in the west and it's the same term that the apostle paul uses in mm -hmm. galatians chapter one when he says um if anyone preaches you to a different gospel let him be anathema let him be accursed and it literally means damnation yeah. and again e even eastern orthodoxy agrees with us here Mm -hmm. You know, so this is why this is so important for because if you don't acknowledge it, if nobody acknowledge anybody acknowledges, they're anathematized, they're they're condemned. But when we look in the New Testament, we don't find Peter being this supreme bishop over all other um, leaders in in the church. In fact, in First Peter chapter five verse one, what does Peter even say about himself? He describes himself as being a fellow elder, a sim presbyteros. That's the Greek term for fellow elder. He doesn't describe himself as being the lead elder, you know, or the chief um, elder or anything. He applies that strictly to Christ, you know, so he doesn't consider himself to have any more authority than, than any other leader or apostle or, or, or pastor or anything else in the church. And what's interesting, I mentioned about First Clement, which is that first century letter that's written from Rome to the Church of Corinth. He actually, or the writers actually say that the those in the Church of Corinth need to submit to the elders in that church, not to the Church of Rome or to the Bishop of Rome. For instance, in chapter one, First Clement, it says, "Honor the presbyters among you." He they don't he doesn't say this about. Uh, the elders or or the bishop of rome because there was no bishop of single bishop of rome at that time as we showed earlier in chapter 47 the writers rebukes those who are highly disgraceful to engage in sedition against it meaning the church of Corinth's presbyters in 
chapter 44, it says, let the flock of Christ live on terms of peace with the presbyters set over it, meaning the church of Corinth. And then finally in chapter 57, it writes, submit yourselves to the presbyters, meaning the elders, if people are wondering what presbyters means, of the church of Corinth. And if we were to look further into the letter of uh, First Clement and some other extra biblical writings like the Didache and, and the, the Epistle to Barnabas and others. There's no distinction between presbyters and elders. And even in a biblical model, uh, they're, they're one and the same. The, the, the split between the bishop and the elders in the church didn't happen until the time of Ignatius in the early first century, which also supports the fact there was no single bishop in, in Rome because bishops and elders in Rome were the same thing. Um, I mentioned about Eusebius in book five, uh, section 25. He writes about Victor, who is the bishop of Rome during this time. And when he's writing, this is late um, second century when he's talking about the time period because it's during the time period of Irenaeus. And Irenaeus is writing at the end of the second century as well. So Eusebius writes that Pope Victor, even though he wasn't actually Pope, he was he was just a single bishop of Rome, who presided at Rome, tried to cut off from the common unity of, as heterodox, all the Asian dioceses, announcing the absolute excommunication of all the brethren there, not celebrating, which was about not celebrating Easter on Sunday. The bishops sharply reprimanded Victor. Among them was, was Irenaeus not to excommunicate entire churches of God for following ancient traditions. Now, to kind of back up a little bit what we're talking about, there was a dispute about when to celebrate Easter. And Victor, who was the bishop of Rome at that point, said that it was based on apostolic tradition that uh, they were worshiping on Sunday. However, Victor wasn't able to prove this. It was He was basing it on recent history. Now, Irenaeus, who's an early church father and a doctor of the Roman Catholic Church, was on Victor's side because he was under his jurisdiction. But what Irenaeus is saying is that um, he reprimanded saying that, that you shouldn't excommunicate these churches just because they disagree with you on when to um, went to celebrate Easter. And what Irenaeus actually said was that his mentor Polycarp, and Polycarp was a first to second century early church father who is a disciple of the apostle John. He said that Polycarp had celebrated Easter with the other apostles um, on the 14th day of Nisan. And if you go into the Old Testament, that's roughly around March or April. And it didn't always fall on the same day. It didn't always fall on a Sunday. Sometimes it would fall on a Friday, sometimes a Wednesday, sometimes a Monday. Um, but it, it wasn't consistent. you know. And he said this is based on ancient tradition, ancient tradition going all the way back to the first century. So what he's arguing is, is if you want to celebrate on Sunday, that's fine. If you want to celebrate on the actual day that Easter was celebrated by the apostles and by Polycarp, that's fine. And, and he's rebuking him. And I'm thinking to myself, can you imagine today if the Bishop of Rome was being rebuked by the bishops that are in support of him? That's not going to happen, especially if he just declares what's called ex cathedra, which we talked about earlier, which I'll get more into later. And as I mentioned earlier, Eusebius brings up that there were actually five patriarchs uh, leading bishops throughout all of Christendom. And again, he's writing at the beginning of the fourth century. So this is really late. Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Jerusalem. And they did not have jurisdiction over each other. They had their own 
like basically dioceses or provinces, you know, that they had that they had ruled mm-hmm. over. But um, the Bishop of Rome did not have authority over the Patriarch of Constantinople or, or vice versa. They were all independent of each other. And I was thinking, like when I wrote my book, little shame plug, shameless plug here, why Protestant Bibles are smaller in defense of the Protestant Old Testament canon, I actually did a whole chapter devoted strictly to these fourth century councils of Rome, Hippo, and Carthage, where they outlined the biblical books uh, that are at these local councils. And what's interesting is that they had different biblical canon than the churches in the East. And you can see this, Cyril of Jerusalem, uh, who is a doctor of the church, uh, did not have the identical Old Testament canon that Rome had. Neither did Athanasius of Alexandria. Alexandria. Uh, The Council of Laos Laodicea, which convened before these councils in the mid-4th century, were not identical. And I remember thinking to myself when I was studying this, if the Pope had supreme jurisdiction over all of Christendom, why didn't the Bishop of Rome make a decree saying, these are the books of the Bible, this applies to everybody, not just the churches in the West, and if not, you're excommunicated like they did much later at the Council of Trent in 1546. And that's because the Bishop of Rome only had jurisdiction in the end of the 4th century as far as uh, Hippo and Carthage, which was North Africa. They had no jurisdiction at the east at this point. Lastly, there is a forgery, a 4th century forgery referred to as a donation of Constantinople. And again, Eusebius talks about this, that falsely claimed to have been written by Emperor Constantine. And we got to remember, Constantine was the one that made Christianity legal in the mm-hmm. early first century. And it, it was claimed to have been written by him to the Bishop of Rome, transferring power to the Pope, and therefore the Pope having uh, the same type of authority spiritually over all of the Roman Empire, just as the emperor had did. However, we found out that this is actually an 8th century forgery, most likely written by Pope Sylvester at that time. So before I go further into uh, unbroken succession of popes, comments or questions? I'm going to forego any comments here so we can stay on a good pace of time. Um, Mike, I don't know if you have anything, though. Or I don't even know if Mike's frozen. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, we'll just we'll just go ahead and push on, okay. um, so so we can keep moving with time and, um, really, really, uh, um, there's so much here, mm-hmm. so it's 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 important for us to get this again, and we're seeing this progression over time, and yeah. and what is taking place, and I think it's 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 important for us to pick that up. So, all right, another important thing is this unbroken succession of popes that's claimed to go all the way back to the first century, but when you actually look into history, uh, you don't really find this. Uh, for instance, Hegesippus, Irenaeus, and Jerome, they list Linus, Cletus, which is the shortened version of Anacletus, and then Clement as being the first three popes. And what's interesting is they don't mention uh, Peter being the first pope. It's actually Linus. The belief is that Peter and Paul had established the Church of Rome, but that Peter was not the first pope. Uh, a bishop of Rome that, that they believe this is Linus. And of course, this is coming much later. Mm-hmm. And then there's a poem by Marcion who said it's Linus, Cletus, Anacletus as separate people and Clement. So there's some confusion about whether or not Cletus and Anacletus were the same person or if they were different. And again, this is second century. Uh, Hippolytus written, I think, end of second, early third century, so that it's Linus, then Clement, then Cletus, then Anacletus. So you got Clement being second. 
And Jerome, uh, writing in the end of the fourth, early fifth century, or yeah, fourth, early fifth century in his work on illustrious men, stated that most of the Latin, meaning the Latin church fathers, think that Clement was second after the apostles. You know, so they believe it's Linus, then Clement, then Anacletus. And he points out that uh, Cletus and Anacletus were actually the same person. So in the very early part of the church, when it should be known and consistent, there's an actually inconsistent succession of popes, even as far as the order of popes and whether or not one particular pope is the same person or if they're different, referring to Cletus and Anacletus. And just to mix everything else up, Jerome writes that Ignatius, who we mentioned earlier, who was a bishop in the early first century, was the third bishop of the church of Antioch after Peter the Apostle. And this is interesting because Peter supposedly lived from 32 AD to 67 AD. So when was Peter uh, supposed to be bishop of Antioch at that point if he's supposed to be bishop of Rome? Mm -hmm. And Clement I, who is believed to be the third bishop of Rome, was supposed to have reigned between 88 to 97 AD. And I got this list of bishops and popes from newadvent.org, again, a Catholic online encyclopedia. So here's a question. How could he have reigned as bishop of Rome, referring to Clement, in 88 AD if his epistle was written in uh, before 70 AD and and he was the author, and that just shows that he was not the author of First Clement. That title got added a lot later. Mm-hmm. And lastly, uh, I think Mike had brought up about the Avignon papacy when there were th- three, possibly four popes, and this was in the 13th century. And I did a little research on this. This was from roughly from 1305 to 1376, and there was actually three popes: uh, John the 23rd, who of uh, the Holy Roman Emperor had asked to convene the Council of Rome. Uh, or convene the Council of Constance, which was in 1414. And what ended up happening is he ended up uh, deposing, or the the council ended up deposing uh, this alleged pope. And the Catholic Church now states that he was actually an anti-pope because Mm. uh, he he convened, he was um, elected pope in, uh, I believe it was Avignon, France. And then um, there was another anti-pope, actually... I'm sorry, John the 23rd was the anti-pope of, of, of Pisa. There was a there was a local council of Pisa, and he was elected um, pope there, but he's not recognized as the legitimate pope by the Catholic Church. Then there was an anti-pope Benedict XIII from Avignon in France, and he was deposed. And then there was Gregory the Twelfth, who had convened in Rome, and he's looked at as being the legitimate pope. But there's two things here: a, the bishop of Rome for 70 years wasn't even in Rome. He, the bishop of Rome, was actually the bishop in Avignon, France. And then it, there was a push for the 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 bishop of Rome to come back. Now people say that it, you know, the bishop of Rome doesn't actually have to be in the city of Rome to be bishop there. But if I, I would ask, well, if that's true, why was there a push for him to come back? And a lot of it was political. Uh, and the other thing I thought of, if the legitimate Pope, Gregory Twelfth, was the valid Pope, why was he asked to step down? Why did he step down? Why didn't, when they, they uh, convened the Council of Constance said, this is a true Pope, this is a genuine Pope, and everybody's going to agree that it's him. The, the other issue that I had, too, uh, when I was uh, studying this is – kind of tr- I lost my train of thought. Um, I'm hoping it will come back to me. But um, 
anyways, let, let, let's move on after that because the next thing I want to get into is Ex Cathedra, and if it comes back, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it. So, any anything more uh, about uh, the succession? Yeah, of I, I just think it, it is fascinating when you look at scripture and you look at the fact that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And whether you take an early dating of scripture or a later dating of scripture, some believe that it was written completely before 70 AD, some up until 95, 96 AD, when you're talking about Revelation. I just think that somewhere there's going to be a mention in the the epistles or from Paul or one of the other uh, apostles about Peter being the head. And I know Galatians is written earlier, you know, around maybe say 40 uh, AD or so. Mm -hmm. But Paul says when he's speaking in in chapter two and he talks about these men, he's going up there to make sure the gospel that he's preaching is not running in vain. And he says these men who seem to be influential, not that they mean anything to me, he said, you know, but he, he doesn't make this reference like Peter is this influential guy. And not just necessarily to Rome, but if he's the one that's given the keys, even before he's in Rome, he would be the one that was the head of all of this, right? right? But we don't we don't see that in Scripture. We actually see James kind of leading that council in Jerusalem. And so, again, just seeing this succession and seeing the the what you've mentioned here with the succession of popes and these different men who um, were, uh, <clears throat> you know, where it really started with Linus and Clement and then uh, like these other guys that you said, but. I just think it's it's interesting because the scriptures don't speak about it. We don't see it anywhere. And if if it was that, um, if it was that true, then I think we would see somewhere in the scriptures this this mention of Peter being the head of the church here on earth. You know, exactly. but it's not it's not mentioned anywhere. No, and, and thing is, and what will get pushed back from our Roman Catholic friends is they say, well, we don't believe in sola scripture, or we don't believe everything. Right. You know, that's true is, is recorded in scripture, but something this important that has an anathema that will condemn you to hell, you would think that this would be mentioned by somebody in scripture. And it's not like one person wrote the New Testament, the New right, Testament right. written by at least nine different authors. So something, and, and it seems like all the things that we disagree with Rome about that is binding for the Catholic to believe, you can't find it anywhere in scripture. I mean, not just yeah. one thing, but multiple things. Right. So, all right. So, ex cathedra. You want to move on to that one then, or yeah, yeah. Okay. Mike, if you have anything at any time, just jump yeah. in because I can't see you right now. I know you're having some technical difficulties, but just jump in if you have anything. Okay. All right. So we'll move on. Ex cathedra. So, again, this goes back to Vatican One, 1870, at this ecumenical council where it says we teach and define a divinely revealed dogma that when the Roman pontiff, meaning the Pope, speaks ex cathedra, meaning from the chair of Peter, that's what it means, in defining doctrine concerning faith and morals, it is to be held by the whole church. So this is not something that is optional. This is something that's mandatory when he speaks from the chair of Peter, when he speaks infallibly. So not everything, the belief is not everything that the that the Pope says is necessarily true. We see this a lot from Pope Francis, where he kind of puts his foot in his mouth yeah. when, he, when he tells people that when he tells a little boy that his atheist um, father went to heaven because he allowed him to be baptized. They'll say, well, he's not speaking ex cathedra. He's not speaking from the chair. This is just his personal opinion. Well, there was two dogmas. There's only been two dogmas that the Pope has defined infallibly. Um, according to the Catholic Church, and that's the bodily assumption of Mary in 1950 by Pope Pius XII and the Immaculate Conception of Mary in 1854 by Pope Pius IX. 
the problem is that when he defined this dogma, he was basing it on a faulty Latin translation of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, known as the Clementine Vulgate, where it reads, And I will put enmity, and this is God speaking through Moses, he says, I will put enmity between you, referring to the serpent, uh, which is Satan, and the woman, and the woman is believed to be Mary, and between your seed and her seed. She, referring to Mary, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise her, meaning Mary, on the heel. So in other words, he's saying that what's going to happen is there's going to be enmity between the woman, which they believe is Mary, and between um, Satan, and between Mary's seed, which is Jesus, and the serpent's um, seed. And they base, and so the Pope based this dogma, this infallible dogma of the Immaculate Conception on this translation. The problem is, even if you don't have um, the Latin or Greek or anything like that, if you just open Genesis chapter 3, it's very clear that the woman is that he's talking about is Eve. He's not talking about Mary. Because eight times the Hebrew word for woman is used eight times in chapter 3 before we even get to verse 15, and it's used 14 times after verse 15, and every one of those times it's referring to Eve. And yet we're to believe that God suddenly is switching to talking about Mary, who wouldn't be born for several thousand years later, because he uses the word woman, because uh, Jesus, Mary is referred to as woman in the New Testament. Well, the problem with that, there's other people that Jesus refers to as woman in the New Testament, such as Mary Magdalene and, and a few others. Also, the um, New Testament does not support that this is talking about Mary, but that it's talking about Jesus when it talks about uh, you shall bruise um, her on the heel. Irology, the, the better translation is actually him. Because mm -hmm. in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You know, so it's this is a prophecy fulfilled about Jesus. And as I mentioned about the Hebrew, the Greek, and the Latin, including Jerome's Vulgate, it actually renders he, not she. So in mm -hmm. other words, all these languages, including Jerome's Latin Vulgate, understood that this is talking about Jesus, not Mary. Right. Plus, in 1979, so this is over 100 years later, uh, another Latin translation called the Nova Vulgata actually translates he, not she. So they understood this as well. And if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ at the very beginning when um, the Jesus character is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he stomps on the head of the, the serpent. Mary doesn't do it. And I caught that right away when I saw that for the first time. Uh, another thing is that many doctors of the churches, popes, saints, and, and other early church fathers did not believe in a lot of these dogmas. So what happens with them? Because And the point being is that this dogma that wasn't, these dogmas that weren't defined until the 19th and 20th centuries that was considered mandatory to believe, a lot of them did not believe in these dogmas because they b realized there was no biblical or historical basis for them. Another problem is uh, Vatican II. There is something called Lumen Gentium that came out of Vatican II in 1964, and it was written by Pope Paul VI. So you're, again, another ecumenical binding council. And it, he wrote, this religious submission of mind and will must be shown in a special way to the authentic magisterium of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. Now, what was said earlier in Vatican I? It is only when he speaks ex cathedra that what he says is binding. 
Well, less than a century later, you've got another pope in another ecumenical council saying, no, it's not um, when it's uh, speaking ex cathedra. It's even when he's speaking to that little boy saying that his atheist father went to heaven. Mm -hmm. And the same pope just within a year later said, declared that Muslims adore and worship the one supreme God. Well, that's not true because the one supreme God is Jesus. That's the God that Christians worship. Muslims do not worship Jesus as God. That would be considered blasphemy to them. So here he's speaking, allegedly speaking infallibly, and yet he's declaring something that's not true. So the next thing is about Matthew 16, 18. So uh, any comments or questions before we advance? No, yeah, I just, I, I find it very fascinating. And I think it's important because again, a lot of times, they're they're contradicting themselves here with the ex cathedra, where mm -hmm. one is saying you know only when he's speaking from the chair of Peter, and then another saying no, it's when he speaks at any time. But even in that, if if you are this person that speaks and everything you say is binding when you're speaking on theology, as as you said, uh, defining doctrine or concerning the faith and morals, mm -hmm. it's to be held by the whole church. So why would someone who who has that type of authority? have an opinion that is contrary to what the doctrine states. Right. I mean, because the scriptures are clear that apart from Christ, there is no life. So mm -hmm. if you're an atheist telling somebody something to make them feel good or to yeah. feel better about their dad passing and sadly, sorry, you know, that we, we all experienced death, you know what I mean? But like the, the, to tell someone that is not being, um, true to what you're supposedly there to uphold is these doctrines and the faith. Right. And then, so you're saying something that's contrary to the scripture, but again, like you said, they don't really take sola scriptura. They don't really have the scripture, even though it's one of their authorities, it's not higher than tradition. You know, they'll say they're equal, but it's not higher. Tradition is, is much higher than their, their, their view of the scripture. You right. Know? And it's funny <clears throat> because Rob will say that unlike, Protestants whose authority is um, the scriptures alone, they have a triple authority of the scriptures, sacred tradition, and the magisterium. But as James White is pointing out, that's not true. They they stand on a one-legged stool too, and that's the mm -hmm. magisterium, because the magisterium determines uh, what scripture and tradition are and how to interpret it. And it was funny because if you go back to the Council of Rome, it actually states that the scriptures gave us the church, not that the church gave us the scriptures. So that's a yeah. huge problem there. And that was approved by the Bishop of Rome. Yeah. So, so all right. So if we go on, uh, we talked about the ex-cathedra. Um, the next thing and the big thing is Matthew 16, 18. And I would have to say without Matthew 16, 18, everything crumbles if it can be shown linguistically that when – Peter, or when Jesus is talking to Peter, and, and he said he was giving him the keys, that he was not uh, building the rock on Peter, because without this, the whole system crumbles. So uh, the argument that I've heard is that Jesus, when he was speaking, he would not have been speaking in Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, but he would have been speaking in Aramaic. The big problem with this is that we cannot prove that linguistically from the New Testament. You know, the Jews were multilingual. They spoke Greek. They spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. They, they spoke Latin. You know, and the so it goes something like this. When he says, you are Peter, the, the Aramaic word would have been Cephas, and upon this rock, with the Aramaic word would have been Cephas, I will build my church. So you are Cephas, and upon the Cephas, I will build my 
rock, checkmate, and, and there you go. Th there's, there's a few problems with that, is that uh, the, the word for Cephas is the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew word kef, which means a hollow of a rock. So what Jesus is actually telling him, it, Peter, is that he's saying, you are a hollow of a rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And we're going to get into this rock and what this means. Mm -hmm. But if the thing is, if um, Jesus was, or if, if Matthew, when he's writing, if this was really talking about Peter, he would have translated it something like, you are Petros, which is Greek, you know, for Peter. And upon this Petros, I will build my church. Now, if that was the case, it'd be a slam dunk, but he doesn't. He translates right. it as you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. So why does he suddenly change it from uh, the masculine to the feminine? Now, some people say, well, he wouldn't have given Peter a feminine name, um, which is bogus because it doesn't understand the linguistics on, on, on um, gender tenses in uh, languages like Greek. But that's not even an issue because if Peter was the rock, he, he would – or was not the rock um, – it would have read that he, that that you are Petros, the masculine, and upon this Petra feminine, I will build my church. So he switches the word to Petra, and that's because he's not saying Peter is the rock. And again, Kef is Aramaic for Cephas. It means hollow of the rock. And the word for Petra literally means a cliff or a projecting rock. That's what it means in the in the Greek, a massive living rock. And mm. it comes from a Hebrew word, Selah. Uh, which means a crag, a cliff, or a stronghold. And it's used in Judges chapter 6, verse 20, when it says, The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock, Sela. And when it's translated into Greek, it's the word Petra. So there, linguistically, there is a difference between Petra and Petros. Uh, so there, there is argumentation there. But the real kicker, is when he says this rock who is he talking to well if you read in english it appears to be talking to peter that peter is this rock he builds his church on but the greek words is tate petra and in greek tate for what's translated this refers to a subject immediately preceding the one just named it refers to the leading subject of a sentence although in a position more remote so in other words it's not talking about the previous noun which would be peter but the previous previous one just named, meaning previous to Peter. It would have been something uh, before Peter. And I, in the notes, I mentioned that the uh, Hebrew or the Greek word hutas is a synonym, and it's actually the root of the word tate. So tate, hutas, it basically means, means the same thing. And if we were to go back a few chapters in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, hutas, same as tate, and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So what he, is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that, that those who hear these words of mine and acts on them, he compares um, these words of mine to the rock. And you have to go back to uh, verse 21 to 23 to see what he's actually talking about, the words that he's talking about. And when you go, when you compare this to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, the same Greek word, um, tate or hutas, when it says this rock, doesn't refer to 
uh, Peter it, it refers to what Peter is saying, the revelation that God gave Peter that Jesus was the Christ, the Son mm-hmm. of the living God. And then Peter, Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but your Father who is in heaven. Furthermore, if you go into the Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek in Numbers chapter 20, verse 10, it reads, And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this words tote petra? So what does this rock refer to you? Does it refer to the previous noun, which would be water, or it would re- refer to the rock that Moses and Aaron had gathered the assembly before. It refers to that rock. In other words, it refers to um, uh, the subject immediately preceding the one just named and refers to the leading subject of a sentence more remote. Likewise, in Matthew 16, 18, it's not talking about Peter. It's talking about Peter's confessions. Mm-hmm. At, and lastly, um, there was work, I think it was by Philip Shaft, who who is a very reputable Protestant, even Catholics will acknowledge, you know, that he's very reputable and he was a historian and a theologian. And he did a study of the early church fathers, and something like 80% of them did not believe Peter was the rock. And a lot of these early church fathers were Greek as well as Latin. And many of them were even doctors of the church, like Augustine. He thought the rock was Jesus. He did not believe that the rock was Peter. And there's a bunch of them, but only about 20% of them believe that Peter was the rock. So it, when you're talking about really early history, you don't have support uh, from Matthew 16, 18, the way the contemporary Roman Catholic Church does. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We can just keep on moving. Okay. Um, and we are we are at our hour time. I'm okay mm-hmm. with going over so far as you are as well, as long as you oh, want to yeah. stay. Okay, just wanted to make sure. But yeah, we yeah. can just keep keep moving. <clears throat> yeah, because yeah, because the majority of this uh, of this discussion is on Peter. Uh, you know, about two thirds of it. So we'll, we'll just keep on moving, and 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 uh, so we'll talk about uh, the Pope being the Vicar of Christ, meaning the substitute of Christ that we had mentioned earlier. And uh, Eusebius in Book Ten, he reproduces a, an imperial letter from Emperor Constantine from the fourth century to the Bishop of Carthage, where he writes, "Patricius, the Vicar." of prefix or the substitute of prefix. And there's a note down by Paul Meyer who translates it. And he says, the vicar governed a group of providences, meaning he didn't govern the entire empire. It was only a a section. And that's what we see in the fourth century, right up to the councils of Rome, Hippo and Carthage, that the Bishop of Rome governed the North African provinces, but not the churches in the East. That, you know, resulted later in the great schism the east never accepted the bishop of rome with that type of supremacy plus a vicar is somebody that is a substitute and we actually find in the gospel of john in chapter 14 and chapter 16 that the substitute that he promised to send was not peter it was the holy spirit because he says but the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name He will teach you all things. It is to your advantage that I go away. And if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So what he's saying is the helper can't go until I leave. You know, so and and that's what a substitute is. It's to be in place of Mm -hmm. somebody else. So Jesus has to leave first before the Holy Spirit comes. Yeah. Amen. We can keep on. Yep. All right, I keep on going. Okay, and the last one is salvation only through the Pope. But this is something that really concerned me even when I was a Catholic. And this comes from Unum Sanctum. This is from Pope Boniface VIII in 1302. And he says, we declare, we proclaim, 
we define who's the we it's it's not just him it's the whole um, catholic church that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the roman pontiff and if you notice he's not just talking about people that identify themselves as christians he's talking about every human cr creature these includes non uh Catholics. This includes people that are not Eastern Orthodox. This includes even secular rulers like the emperor himself of the Holy Roman Empire. And yet, by the time we fast forward several centuries to Vatican II, Pope Paul VI that we mentioned earlier declared that Muslims adore and worship the one supreme God. So um, are they subject to the Roman Pontiff? No. So therefore, they're not saved. And yet, Pope Paul VI says that they worship the one supreme God, which they don't. Now, the way that um, past popes have tried to get around this is uh, in 1863, Pope Pius IX declared invincible ignorance, where he writes, those who are struggling with invincible ignorance, meaning that it's not their fault that they don't know, they're ignorant, they live honest lives and are able to attain eternal life, not guilty of deliberate sin to suffer eternal punishment. But that goes completely against what Pope Boniface said in, in the early 1300s, that it's absolutely necessary for salvation uh, to, be, to be subject to the Roman pontiff. So there's a bit of a problem there. And in Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, uh, he, this same pope, he ends up writing, through no fault of their own, those who do not know the gospel, seek God with a sincere heart, may achieve eternal life. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, section 847, says the same thing. But this completely goes against scripture. When the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Rome in chapter 3, he says there is none who seeks after God. And yet Vatican II is saying there are those who do seek after God uh, with a sincere heart, and they can, be, um, they can be saved and have eternal life. And yet when Paul writes just a chapter earlier in chapter 2, he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all mm -hmm. who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So he's saying there's no invincible ignorance here. They have the law written on their heart, and if and if they reject the God, uh, reject God, they will perish because even if they don't know what the law says, and, and Paul is, uh, says elsewhere that he says he's very thankful that he had the law because the law – pointed him towards his sin but if he hadn't known about the law he too would have perished yeah that's why it's vitally important for us to understand when when we're interacting with rome and and i don't think every um everyone who's roman catholic may understand these things may know what vatican ii says right you know may know um what is being taught within their their church but that's a different gospel. When you're adding to the gospel that you have to adhere to everything the Pope says, um, that's salvation, you know, is, is, is um, hinging upon him as well. That's adding to justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And so <clears throat> what I see with, with Rome is there's a lot of, even when you was talking about uh, Mary earlier, how there's this pull from Christ to put emphasis on Mary, a pull from Christ to put emphasis on the Pope. And we don't see that anywhere in scripture. It's not a pull. Paul and Peter, they don't say anything about um, pulling from uh, Christ to put any um, preeminence on themselves. It's all the preeminence of Christ. You know, right. that's, that's important. And, and that's why it's very important that we are able to engage our, our friends that are Roman Catholics in a loving way to say, look, this is a different gospel here, you know, right. that's being taught. Yeah, and what's being um, 
promulgated and being pushed in advance the narrative that you have to believe this, otherwise you're anathematized. It's not supported by scripture. It's mm -hmm. not even supported by the early church. When you really get past the early fourth and fifth century, there was a, a Catholic cardinal who converted to Roman Catholicism, uh, John Henry Newman. He says, to be deep into history is to cease to be Catholic. Well, I had the opposite experience because once I got past the fourth, fifth century, fifth centuries and i started digging deeper i realized to be way deep into history it was to cease to be roman catholic because like i says eusebius um, he's no friend of the roman catholic church because he just does not support a lot of these beliefs that we're talking about now so yeah. did you want to uh, start talking about purgatory yeah we can get into purgatory Okay, because like most of this discussion is, is behind us. Most of this was on the papacy. So these next couple things should, should actually go by pretty quick here. Okay. So uh, the word purgatory, um, again, I got this from New Advent. Uh, it's from the Latin purgare. It means to make clean or to purify a place of condition of temporal punishment. Remember that word punishment. For mm -hmm. those who departing this life in God's grace are not entirely free from venial sins or have not fully paid the satisfaction due to their transgression transgressions and for those who don't know the difference between venial and and mortal sins in roman catholic soteriology if you commit a venial sin you have to have that expunged in pur purgatory which you receive temporal punishment there but if you commit what's called a uh, a uh, a mortal sin which is a gross violation against god if you die you go to hell there's no purging in purgatory and the idea of indulgences that's tied to purgatory, which um, Luther was against because they were abusing mm -hmm. indulgences at that time. And that led to the uh, nailing in the 95 Theses and, and the birth of the Protestant Reformation. New Advent uh, defines indulgences as the extra sacramental remission of the temporal punishment due in God's justice to sin that has been forgiven. And this is something that a lot of Protestants and even a lot of Catholics misunderstand. Indulgences don't pay for the forgiveness of sin. What it's saying is that, that, that the sin has already been forgiven. So even venial sins were paid for and forgiven by Jesus on the cross. The purpose of indulgences is to remit the temporal punishment in purgatory, which we had just defined earlier. But when you look at passages like 1 John 1, 7, it says the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And the word, the word cleanse is really important because it's, it's going to pop up here in a second. And Isaiah 59, 2, it says, your iniquities, plural, have made separation between you and your God. And, of course, Jesus' atonement um, built that bridge back because he's an eternal being and his, his eternal shed blood on the cross reconciled us uh, to God, which you read about in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. But the real kicker is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 where the writer says when he meaning jesus had made purification and the word purification greek means cleaning or purgation of sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and you can look this up in any greek concordance or lexicon the word for purification means purgation this is when the purging took place it took place on the cross mm -hmm. it did not it did not it's not to take place in the afterlife before advancing to heaven. And what's interesting, I was having a, a conversation with a Roman Catholic in, in one of my groups that I have that I'm part of online. And she tried to use Hebrews chapter one, verse three that we just I just read as support for for purgatory, because he says she said, you got to read it in the vault in the Latin. Well, I looked up in the Latin Vulgate and this is how it reads. It reads. This is the English translation from the Latin. 
who being the brightness of his glory and the figure of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power, making purgation, purgashonam, that's the, the Latin word, of sin, sitteth at the right hand of the majesty on high. And she says, see, purgatory is in the Bible. It's it's the word purgashonam translated purgatory. There's a couple of problems with this. It, the, the actual Latin word for purgatory is purgatorium, not purgashonam. Mm-hmm. And the word uh, purgashom, as we mentioned from the from the Greek translation, uh, means a cleansing or purgation. So her example actually disproved and discredited the idea of purgatory, where it's this intermediate realm realm that that the righteous has to go to to have their sins purged before advancing to heaven. Because the writer of Hebrews is saying that purgatory that purgation actually took place on the cross so hebrews actually argues against purgatory not for it um the other really so the question is what about this punishment deal well that's answered in isaiah chapter 53 starting in verse 5 to 10 where it says and i'm not going to read the whole thing i'm just going to read the the you know the the main parts it says he this is a prophecy about jesus he was pierced or wounded or had borne through for our transgressions he was crushed broken bruised smoked destroyed for our iniquities the chastising for our well-being fell on him and by his scourging his stripes his wounds or his blows we are healed and here's mm-hmm. the kicker but the lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. But the Lord was pleased, meaning delighted or took pleasure to crush him. So in other words, it was the Lord, our God, the Father, had crushed him. He he was the one who actually broke him, bruised him, smote him. Now we think, well, the Romans were the ones that put him on the cross, and the Jews were the ones that were calling for him to be crucified. And they were secondary parts in God's master plan, but it was actually the Lord that put him on the cross uh, by his providence, because that's how the sins of mankind were going to be healed. But Isaiah is saying that the Lord crushed him. In other words, the God the Father punished Jesus on the cross. So the purpose of purgatory is punishment then that completely goes against isaiah who says that jesus was punished which means that there's no reason for purgatory there's no purpose of it because Mm -hmm. jesus was punished we we don't get punished later that's double jeopardy and then um in fact we read in job chapter 19 for the wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is judgment so god's wrath was was put on jesus and he was punished not us if, if we don't accept christ we receive that punishment mm-hmm. and we receive that judgment in first john 4 18 john writes there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love but what does the bible say there is no fear for those of us who are in christ jesus now the passage i'm going to finish up with this the passage uh that they try to go to is second maccabees uh verse 12 for, for the idea of purgatory now we're not going to get into whether or not it's not scripture it's not something that the jews believed, which is why the uh the reformers and later Protestants didn't believe it's not scripture, but even second Maccabees 12 does not support it. Uh, now what it says is, and so partaking themselves to prayer, they besought that the sin which had been committed might be forgotten, making a gathering. He meaning Judas Maccabeus sent 12,000 drachms of silver offering for the sins of the dead, a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead and they may be loosed from their sins. And so, Catholics will say, aha, see, this is evidence of praying for the dead, and 
then they're loose from their sins. And what had happened at this point is that the soldiers that were fighting for Israel had been died. And what ended up happening is, is they were discovered to have these emulents of, of false deities, of, of idols that were around their neck. And so what's happening is that Judas Maccabeus is, is taking um, this, this um, gathering of money uh, of these, these 12,000 drachms uh, because of the sin that they had committed. But the problem with there's is this is twofold. One, there's no shedding of blood to atone for their sins. And as Hebrews 9 22 says, all things are cleansed or purged with blood. And right. without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This didn't happen here. Second of all, what they would have committed would, would have been considered a mortal sin in the Roman Catholic Church, not a venial sin that could be purged in purgatory later. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25, it says, The graven image of, images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, or you will be snared by it. It is an abomination to the Lord your God. And the word for abomination is also used in the Old Testament uh, when it's applied to homosexuality and bestiality. And for those who have not repented of those sins and continue in that lifestyle— they're considered an abomination. They won't go to heaven. They won't go to purgatory when they die. They, they go straight to hell. Right. And this is even repeated support in the New Testament. And yet it's using the same word abomination to refer to those who had simply taken these um, these amulets. So it's not that they were worshiping this amulets. They couldn't even take it. So according to Second Maccabees, they wouldn't have gone to purgatory when they died. They would have actually gone to hell because it would have been considered a mortal sin in, in Roman Catholicism. So what all of that's happening in Second Maccabees is that Judas Maccabeus is, is taking this collection of money and praying that the sin that they had committed would not be imposed on Israel. That's all that's happening here. Yeah. I think it's also, it's, so, so just for clarification, with mm -hmm. purgatory here, um, like when you started, this isn't um, their their sins are forgiven. Right, is what you're saying. So they they yeah. believe that you've been forgiven by Christ, but because you've sinned after that, you know you you've come to to faith or whatnot or died with these venial sins, you have to pay the penalty for those sins. Right. Which I think of of Romans when Paul says, "There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ." neither death nor life, anything can separate you from, from the love of Christ. And the fact that the Bible says that Christ is the propitiation for our mm -hmm. sins, not for yep. ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And that word propitiation means the appeased wrath of God. He appeased yep. it. He satisfied it. So if it was satisfied, like you said, then, then you have this double jeopardy. So Christ satisfied the wrath of God for our sin, but yet we have to pay for our sin. Right. And that, that's just not what the Bible teaches us. No, and, and the emphasis really is on the word punishment, which is how mm -hmm. purgatory is defi defined. Because like you said, that sin had the venial sin that is being um, temporarily punished in purgatory uh, has already been forgiven on the cross by Christ. That's actually what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. But, but you still are punished in purgatory and that's the purpose of indulgences idea of giving money or time or whatever else you know to advance to heaven to reduce your amount of time in purgatory which i started thinking what time the the, the eternal life is timeless it's like we live in time so how how could the, uh, you 
pay off temporal punishment. But regardless, mm-hmm. like we when I read from Isaiah chapter 53, God punished Jesus on the cross. So if God punished Jesus on the cross and then a person still goes to purgatory and is punished there again for the same sins, like you said, it's double jeopardy. Yeah. And I think this is this is why Luther had such a problem with this, um, mm-hmm. because these indulgence. And if you think of the time period, what do we see happening? These cathedrals going up, these this is funding the Roman Empire, you know, uh, Roman Catholic Empire. Oh, yeah. And so so you're, you're having um, this way to bring more money in because you're concerned about your loved ones. You want to help get them out of purgatory. You don't want them to suffer for their they're being punished for their sins. And so you're, you're giving more and more money um, and it's helping to fund this Roman Catholic church. Um, and that's what we see a lot going on. I mean, so many beautiful things being built and, and cathedrals, but, yeah. but when you think about what this is, is doing to the people, it's putting a yoke upon them. It is, it is also um, giving them a false, false understanding of what the scriptures say, because again, if Christ is that appeasement satisfying the wrath of, of God for those who he died for, then we don't receive that punishment. There's no condemnation for us, you know? And that's a, that's a, it's sad that people are, are under that. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Because um, I think if somebody, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but I think if somebody could put, could possibly believe that there could be a purgatory and still be saved, still be a believer. Yeah if they genuinely believe the true gospel, but it puts this, this burden upon you that, you know, is just something that the, the, the scriptures don't put on us for those in Christ. We are, we are justified. Right. We are, we are forgiven. Yeah, and I'd have to say that if a person like a Roman Catholic has been taught all their life about purgatory, um, it is possible for that person to still end up in heaven. The issue is whether or not they believe that Jesus's shed blood on the cross was sufficient for salvation. And that, and if Jesus actually paid for that venial sin, mm-hmm. which, which would mean he, he's Lord over all. So I would say that somebody, especially that's not very familiar with, you know, Roman Catholic theology and simply believes what they were actually taught. Yeah, I believe they could, they could actually go there. But but my concern is more about the leaders and the people who teach it. Right. Because, because what was happening, like I said, in Luther's day is that people like Johann Tetzel was selling indulgences to get your loved ones out of purgatory. And yeah. that's what he was against. And what a lot of people don't realize is that when L- Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of, of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, he was actually dedicating those 95 theses to the Pope. He thought he was doing a good thing, not knowing that the Pope and the Archbishop of Mainz, Germany, were actually behind the selling mm-hmm. of indulgences in order to you know, rebuild St. Right. Peter's Square and everything. And um, my wife and I went to Rome uh, into the Vatican several years ago just to go because I always wanted to go there. And then as I'm walking around, I'm think I'm seeing all these um, things that are, you know. 500 years old, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, that was paid by a peasant, you know, that was paid by um, somebody that was poor. This was paid by somebody that, you know, thought that if they paid, they'd be able to get their loved one out of purgatory. And, and it just, it kind of saddened the, the experience a little bit for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So we moving into praying to the saints. Yep. This is the last thing, like I said, that, you know, this will go a little bit uh, quicker than, than the first part. Uh, the, the next thing is praying to the saints. And uh, the issue here is that if you tell a Roman Catholic, well, when you pray to Mary and the saints, your worship become, 
you're going to get a emotional reaction there because they'll say, no, Mm -hmm. we worship God alone, but we only venerate Mary and the saints. And this is based on the misunderstanding of two different words in the Latin latria, which means worship to God alone and dulia, which is veneration to Mary Mm -hmm. and the saints, but it, but it's not actually worship. So they'll say there's a distinction between these words and, and we're, we're meshing them unnecessarily together. Well, I decided to look into scripture, look into the Hebrew, look into the Greek, and even look into the early Latin to see if there's, if these words are actually similar. Well, if you go to the Old Testament in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 4, so you're talking the Torah, you're, you're the first five books of Moses. Mm-hmm. Verse 23, it says, let my son go that he may serve me. Now, the Hebrew word for serve is avad. And when it's translated, it's translated latreo. Now, latreo is the Greek form of latria, which refers to the worship of God alone. So he's saying, let them latria me, let them serve me or worship me. And But when you get to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, it reads, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. It's the same Hebrew word avad, but this time... Um, the, the translators use dulia, which means to serve. It's a word that's believed to mean veneration. It's a Greek tra- ver- um, Greek version of dulia, which means veneration, not worship. And yet here, the Old Testament is not making the distinction between latria and dulia uh, because it's translated from the same Hebrew word. It means to serve or to worship. The, the words are synonymous. Now, some people say, well, that's talking about God because when you serve God, you're also worshiping him. But this doesn't apply to people that are non-gods like Mary and the saints or to false gods. You can serve someone, them without worshiping them. But again, I I checked that that out. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 64, it reads, Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods. The Hebrew word is avad, and the Greek word is duleo, which means, which Catholics believe means simply veneration or to serve. Yet in Judges chapter 10, verse 10, it reads, we have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Hebrew word again is avad, like before, but this time it's the word latrio which is translated worship. So even in a situation where it's not talking about God, when service dulia or worship latrio is applied even to people or non-gods, false gods, it's used synonymously. So if you serve that individual, you are worshiping that individual or that false god as well. And in fact, in um, James White's book, I think I've got it here somewhere. It's right here. Um, the Roman Catholic controversy, it, it, he actually makes a quote. He says that in the Latin Vulgate, both dulio to serve and latreo to worship are rendered by the same term servio. So even Jerome, when he translated his Vulgate in 405 AD, even Jerome did not make a distinction between dulio and latreo. They were mm-hmm. considered synonymous. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I know they they like to make that distinction because, you know, um, and we want to be fair when we're talking with some some individuals, but it really is. It's it's a form of worship. I know they don't they don't realize it. Sometimes they don't maybe notice that or recognize it. 
but that's that's really what it is. And as you said, they're not, they're not making a distinction in the scripture with these words. Uh, we did have a question. Um, I don't know if you you may have the answer to this one or not, but um, sure. uh, do we know when St. Peter's, Peter's Cathedral was completed and how old it is? In the oh, a, yeah, it's at least 500 years old because that's about that's how old the uh, the Reformation was. And it started around Leo X. He was the pope. And again, he was in cahoots with the Archbishop of Mainz, Germany. And that's when, because the old St. Peter's Cathedral, it was just falling apart. And they just didn't have the finances for it. So that's why they allowed for Tetzel to be selling these indulgences to to, to pay, uh, to get themselves and their loved ones out of purgatory. Now, as far as how long it took, I'm not sure. I know that um, Eric Metaxas uh, wrote a book in 2017 uh, called Martin Luther. And I think he does mm -hmm. actually talk about it in depth there because he's a he's a really good author. Yeah. But there's I just got that book. I just got that book the other day. Somebody was giving me some books away and I took it. And so I was like, Hey, I just, I haven't read it, but it's, I just got it. You know what, Ricky, I've actually read two books by Eric Metaxas because he, he writes these big tomes and when the way he writes, cause the other one was on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And when he writes, he writes in a way, by the time you finish reading the book, you know them like, you know them personally. I mean, you, yeah. you, you understand Luther, you understand Bonhoeffer. Yeah. All right, so um, I guess we can keep on going, yep. and uh, then when we get to the end, if Mike's still hanging in with us, he's having those technical difficulties for those uh, that are wondering what's going on with Mike. But yeah, poor uh, Mike. Yeah, but like he he can watch it again in the rerun, I guess. So, all right, so Second um, Thessalonians chapter two verse four uh, talks about the future man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, the specific word object of worship is the word sebasma, and it can be translated object of veneration. They're synonymous. So, so mm -hmm. veneration and worship are synonymous words. And, and in fact, the root word, when you break the word sebasma down, it actually means worship. And this isn't just my understanding of it from looking it up in the lexicon. Robert Broderick, who was writing in the Catholic Encyclopedia, page 174, acknowledges, this is his quote, dulia, which is supposed to be just veneration, is special worship, generally called veneration given to the angels and saints. Mm -hmm. NewAdvent.org, again, an online Catholic encyclopedia states, there are several degrees of worship. When worship is addressed only indirectly to God, that is when its object is the veneration of martyrs, of angels, or of saints, it is a subordinate worship. It is designated by theologians as the worship of dulia, a term denoting mm -hmm. servitude and implying when used to signify our worship of distinguished servants of God, that their service to him is their title to our veneration. And Broderick, that I mentioned before, continues Hyperdulia is the highest form of veneration proper to the Blessed Mother, meaning Mary, alone. New Advent um, concurs as the Blessed Virgin has a separate and absolutely super eminent rank among the saints. The worship paid to her is called Hyperdulia. Now, Father Gruby, he's an Eastern Orthodox um, theologian and author, and he agrees with this in his work, The Orthodox Church A to Z. He says, hyperdulia is a special veneration paid to the mother of God. And as we know, veneration is a special worship. In fact, um, when people talk about 
praying to Mary and that it goes all the way back to the first century. There's no historical support for that. Daniel mm -hmm. Esparza, I can see this in, in an article on alatea.org. It's an online Catholic news and information website regarding a specific papyrus that, and this is the quote, contains the oldest Marian prayer known to date, which is from the year 250. And I use mm. this analogy. This would be like me saying something that George Washington believed in and nobody heard about it until today, until I just said that. I would not expect anybody just to take my word for it, considering over a period of 250 years, there's no evidence of George Washington saying what I'm claiming I'm saying. So just because someone is praying to Mary in the mid-third century, there's no reason to believe that this was an ongoing thing going all the way back to the first century. I mean, the, the, there's no prayers to Mary anywhere in the New Testament. And according to the earliest tradition, Mary would have died about 10 years before the Council of Jerusalem convened in 50 AD that we read about in Acts chapter 15. And mm. yet there's no mention of prayer to Mary or any saints in the book of Acts. There's no mention of praying to Mary by the apostle John who took her into her home or anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul certainly doesn't mention it or, or the rest of the New Testament writers. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I said I, I in the beginning when we started, I, I said, a lot of these doctrines that I've, when I've, I've looked into this myself and, oh. and taught on Roman Catholicism at, at church in our Sunday school class of what they believe, you see the progression. While you may see a hint of something, somebody did something, and then others come along and build upon it. And that's mm -hmm. what we see with this, you know, veneration of Mary, or it's ultimately worship of Mary. Um, I see Mike is with us in I video that, yeah. now. Um, it must be nice to be in a place where you can be outside with a t-shirt. Yeah. And, what's up with that? You know, a nice warm weather down there in Florida. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, Mike, did you have anything before we, we move on? Um, I mean, a lot of stuff I had, um, kind of pertained really to, you know, thinking about X or Matthew 16, even how, kind of with that um i guess one thing kind of with and then also with like how augustine plays with um purgatory i know Mehmet, we're kind of backtracking a little bit um on some of that um but kind of how connecting some of those because kind of i think as protestants we have to deal with augustine he's the greatest theologian mm -hmm. in church history there is um, really no one more honored among all um, stripes of Christendom and kind of think through some a little bit of that how kind of Augustine plays in this role especially because he is uh, well received within at least reformed um, theological camps right you know, you know and this is something um, that's often brought up too about Augustine and about the teaching of purgatory in the early church. And this is where the de whole development of doctrine comes in because it's one thing to expound on something like the concept of the Trinity and get into the nuances, but the Trinity is dripping in the new Testament. Uh, right. You read Clement of Rome, you read the early church fathers. There's no question about the concept of the Trinity. It's just the nuances that, you know, come in later as far as the wording. Um, but when it comes to purgatory, even Augustine, the, the doctor of grace, 
as far as his belief in, in, in praying to the dead, I mean, there was a lot of that in the early, early church, but the exact doctrine of purgatory, even Augusta did not teach that if a person dies and they have venial sins, they go to an intermediate realm and then they have to be punished for their venial sins before advancing to heaven. Oh, and by the way, you can get them out of heaven by paying these indulgences that decreases their temporal punishment in, in purgatory. Even Augustine did not teaches and this is where this development of doctrine um, comes in which is a fancy way of just saying this wasn't taught in the church it wasn't taught in scripture we can't find it you know so it it got built on uh, uh they it got built on um false beliefs on top of false beliefs until we finally got to the um contemporary view of of purgatory and the other thing I would just want to say real quick, because I think uh, there was someone in the chat, H.J. Evan, he says, saints weren't dead, maybe Stephen. Well, actually, they were. Uh, if you look to Acts chapter t- 12, um, James, the son of Zebedee, was, was martyred for his face. This is three chapters before the, the, the book of uh, b- before the Jerusalem Council in Acts. And another thing with Stephen, what does Stephen state right before he's martyred? He says, Lord, receive my spirit. Stephen didn't go to purgatory. According mm-hmm. to Stephen, he understood he was going straight you know, in, into the arms of God. He, he wasn't going to any, any – it's not that he was any type of super saint or anything. Yeah, he was martyred for his faith. But who? how do we know who goes to purgatory and who doesn't? What if we're praying to somebody in purgatory that's not actually there? What if they commit, committed a, a, a mortal sin and we're praying and giving indulgences – uh, to get them out of purgatory, and they're actually in hell, and the church didn't know about it. I mean, there's there's a lot of problems with the concept of purgatory and how it relates to praying to the saints. Yeah, that's that's a really good point there, right there again, because we don't ultimately know somebody's end, you know. Yeah. Um, and so you're you're giving indulgences, you're paying, and you're praying for mm-hmm. someone who's you know already passed on, and they've either received the judgment of God, and or they are, are in the presence of Jesus. You know, um, so, all right, kind of to wrap this up, yep. uh, the last part portion last that you have here. Let's, let's get going. Yep. So in First Timothy 1, uh, verse 25, it says that there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And notice he says one for both. There's one God. There's not. There's one mediator, not two mm-hmm. or there's many. And, and the, it's the idea that Jesus is our only mediator between God. There is no co-mediatrix, you know, like Mary or the saints or whatever. We go directly to him because what a mediator does, a mediator a- attempts to reconcile um, between two parties, in our, in our case, how we have offended a, a righteous God. Now, some people say, well, yeah, he is our only mediator, but what about when we pray for each other? Like in verse 1 where Paul writes, prayers, petitions, mm-hmm. and thanksgivings be made on behalf of, on, of all men. Aren't we being used as mediators and intercessors? And the answer to that is no, because when Christians who are on, who are on earth, who are praying for us, we are not functioning as mediators or intercessors because that takes place in heaven because Jesus functions as our great high priest. And this needs to be understood in terms of the Old Testament because only the Old Testament high priest could go into the Holy of Holies before the Shekinah glory of God and atone for the sins of Israel you know, from the year before and, and do the blood sacrifice. And that's the function of Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest, just like that Old Testament high priest. And only him, not his mother and not other Old Testament saints, 
our, our saints, you know, go into the heavenly temple of God, into that inner court, you know, where, where God is, where Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God on this throne. And because in, in Hebrews chapter 7, it says, Jesus, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to him through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So he is our permanent intercessor because he is our permanent high priest. And in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, we have a great high priest. Jesus, the Son of God, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to him in time of need. So we have the confidence to go before God, and that includes the prayers of our loved ones who ask us to pray for them, not as a mediator or as an intermediary, because, again, we're not in heaven like Christ is. So when we are praying to someone in heaven as a co-mediator, that's, again, a form of worship, because when we pray to God, prayer to God it, through Christ is a form of worship. And plus, what does writer of Hebrews say? We can have confidence to go to the throne of grace. So if we can go directly to God through our high priest Christ, why would we pray to anybody else? Why would we pray to Mary and the saints when we can go directly to the Father himself? And in Romans chapter 8, verse 27, it says that Christ is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. He is our only intercessor, and he's sufficient to be our only intercessor. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So in conclusion, uh, yeah. we can go ahead and... Yeah, to conclusion, why is all this important? Well, as we talked about earlier, the Patriarch of Constantinople in 8784, three years before the Second Ecumenical Council of Nicaea convened, said that anathema is a terrible thing. It drives its victims far from God and expels them from the kingdom of heaven, carrying them off into outer darkness. And the New Testament mm. describes outer darkness as hell, eternal hellfire. And this is the word that is used at the Second Council of Nicaea when it says that if someone does not accept uh, icons of of evangelical figures and they don't salute to these icons they are anathema they are expelled from the kingdom and cast into our outer darkness and in vatican one in 1870 it said the same thing about the bishop of rome if you deny the supremacy of the bishop of rome you are anathema it doesn't just mean accursed it doesn't just mean excommunication it means condemnation to hellfire and there's nothing in scripture that tells us this is going to happen. And what happens is this actually adds to the gospel, like you had mentioned earlier, Ricky, because the Apostle Paul says that if anybody gives you another gospel or teaches you another gospel, even if it comes from us or an angel from heaven, let him be anathema, let him be accursed, let him be damned. And by saying that these other things you have to believe, the papacy, the their particular canon of scripture, transubstantiation, the Marian dogmas, etc., uh, praying to Ike or uh, accepting and saluting icons, then you're condemned. And by doing that, they are adding to the gospel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that goes to show, like when you when you are speaking to people and teaching theology, even even from the Protestants' side, we don't want to be anathematizing people. Yeah. Right. Because we don't have that power to damn right. someone to hell. Um, we can only pray for them and give them the gospel and, and call them to repentance to the truth that is in the gospel um, because we can't anathematize anyone. Um, and but we see that a lot from these councils. And much mm -hmm. was because of 
especially the counter-reformation, wanting to mm-hmm. counter what was taking place. Now you see all these people going out, this Protestants now uh, branching here and there, these different denominations popping up. Um, and then how do we how do we counter this? So we start anathematizing. We start using this hard language to say, look, if you don't follow this, you're anathematized. If you don't believe this, you're damned to hell, yeah. right? And so uh, it's a fear tactic to get you to fall in line with the, the things that are being taught here. And um, uh, we believe here at G220 Radio that uh, Roman Catholic Church is apostate. It's it's left biblical orthodoxy. Um, but we do recognize that there may be individuals that are Roman Catholic within the church that are mm-hmm. genuine believers that have come to yeah. faith. And right. we we pray for you to come out of that. I understand coming out of things can be difficultly if you got all, or difficult if you got all these family ties and it's just been your whole life, you know but truth will set you free. And so uh, we, 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 we care for you to, to know that and to come out from that. Um, Mike, did you have anything? I know you was in and out, so I don't know all of what you heard. And, and, um, but if, if, did you have any thoughts, questions, or things that come to mind? So I guess there, I've had many thoughts and questions, but kind of one thing that has repeatedly come to my mind is just, luther's speech at the diet of verbs mm, yeah, yeah when he goes um and i'm quoting him here since you have the most sincere majesty and your holiness requires of me a simple clear and direct answer i will give one and it is this i cannot submit my faith either to the pope or to the councils because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even inconsistencies with themselves if then i am not convinced by proof from the holy scripture or by cogent region i'm not satisfied to the very text i have cited and if my judgment is not in this way brought the subjection of the god's word i can neither can or nor will retract anything for it cannot be safe or honest for a christian to speak against his conscience here i stand i cannot do others god help me i think in that when we think about what we've talked about with the purgatory probes and paying to saints is there are inconsistencies within the the teaching of the catholic church the official whether it's the official dogma or just other teachings that are held in high regard they contradict themselves Uh and what you see in the reformation and what you see especially in Calvin. The largest um, edition of Calvin is the 1559 Latin edition, and he gets a hold of Augustine and other church fathers, starts arguing that the Reformation holds the continued tradition from the early church. And I think, um, again, reviewing these things and bringing these things, I kept coming back to this idea of just Luther sitting or standing before Charles and saying, unless you're going to convince me of scripture, I am bound to what I find in scripture. I think that's kind of just the, kind of the importance of the Reformation, just even in our own um, theological understandings. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm glad you brought up Luther and the Diet of Worms, because we have to understand and appreciate the time period that Luther was living in because uh, he had lived through one ecumenical council, the Fifth uh, Lateran Council, 
and he was familiar with the Council of Constance that was just less than a century beforehand. So that would have been fresh in his mind because remember Luther, he wasn't just some rogue monk. He was a very educated man and, and brought up and, and raised um, Catholic. I mean, he had two bachelors, two masters and, and a doctorate. He was Dr. Luther. And when he started studying like these church councils, he started realizing even the ecumenical councils that are supposed to be infallible with the full weight of the magisterium behind them had contradicted each other because mm -hmm. um, Mike, you had mentioned about the, the Avignon papacy and the papal schism that had happened. Well, in order to heal that, they had to depose these, these, um, these so-called three popes that were around, you know, and they even had the, the quote unquote legitimate Pope have to step down in order to elect another Pope, which again, that doesn't make any sense, but he realized that they were basically teaching that a council could depose a pope and yet in the fifth lateran council in his time they had reversed that that the pope was head over all the church and even in vatican ii it reaffirmed that um that the, the pope um is the head of the church and a council cannot depose him so he's like not only popes but even ecumenical councils have contradicted each other so at this point he's in a conundrum because he can't go against his conscience, and the only thing that he had left that doesn't contradict itself is scripture. It's the mm -hmm. word of God, you know, all 66 books. And he started realizing that those apocryphal books, you know, didn't belong in there. And even the apocryphal books like Second Maccabees didn't support things like purgatory. So that's where the whole soul scriptura, you know, came out of the Reformation, and, and it came from him having to face himself and be honest. And one thing I would say to my Roman Catholic family and friends who I love, whatever you believe, I was there. I, I grew up in it. I was educated much like Luther was. And I finally got to the point where I had to make a decision to believe something, even if it made me uncomfortable and took me to a place I didn't want to be. And when I did that, and I was honest with myself, even though probably 80% of the things that we share with Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox are valid, like the virgin birth and the Trinity and stuff, those things, especially those things that affect salvation, are different, and they affect the gospel. And you have to ask yourself, what's more important, spending eternity in the presence of God and Jesus forever or being out of the presence of Jesus and God forever? And that's a decision I had to make, and I'm just glad that the Holy Spirit convicted me of that. Yeah. Amen. Amen. That's why we talk about the reality of when we say sola scriptura, for those who may be wondering what we're talking about, when we, we talk about the Bible being that final authority, there has to be something upon which we can test the things that we believe. And if it's tradition, that can change over time. Yeah. You can have one tradition at one period of time, and then a hundred years later, your tradition has changed. The magisterium, as you talked about that, they can contradict each other over yep. time. So what is that one thing that does not contradict, as you were saying there, Steve, the scripture does not Amen. contradict itself. And so we have something to test. If somebody's telling me about purgatory, I can test it because I can go to the scripture. If somebody's telling me about praying to Mary, I can test it. I can go to the scripture. If somebody's telling me about the fact Jesus isn't God, I can test that and go to the scripture and see Jesus is God. I'm not saying Roman Catholics teach that, but mm -hmm. whatever it may be, we can test it by the scripture because that's not changing where all these other things can change and do change over time. Right. So, I, brought, I brought that up. <clears throat> yeah. One last quick thing, too, is that one of the things that the pushbacks will get when they when we talk about praying to Mary and the saints, you know, the pushback is usually, well, you know, it is not our intention to be worshiping Mary and the saints when we pray to them. And it's like, 
that's true, but the point is, regardless of what your intention is, the act itself of praying to Mary and the saints is still worship because there is no distinction between dulia and latria in the Latin or in the Hebrew or even in the Greek. So regardless of intention, it's sort of like if someone says, if a woman says, I had an abortion, but I didn't kill my baby. Well, actually you did because regardless of what your intention was and how what you mean by abortion, it's still the the destruction of a life. It's the ending of a life in mm -hmm. which is murder because it's not you. Now that sin is forgivable with genuine repentance. You know, Jesus died on the cross for that sin. If, if you repent, just like he forgave all of my horrible sins when I repented, but it is nonetheless the same thing. Likewise, regardless of your intention, when you pray to burying the saints, linguistically and biblically, it is worship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's been uh, G220 Radio for tonight. I know we went a little bit longer than our normal uh, broadcast, but it was uh, so much information in there. I want you to go back and listen to it again and again, and it'll help you to look at the Pope's uh, purgatory and praying to the saints. Uh, Steve, I want to thank you for coming on again. I appreciate your time uh, spending with us and, and, and walking us through this. Um, next week, we will be here talking about the renewal of theology, the renewal of theology after the fall. Um, and then the following week, Mike and I will have something up and then we're going to have pastor Mike waters come on, uh, the week after that on the 19th, I think of, uh, April. And we're going to talk about the continuity of scripture between the old and new Testament. And so those are a few things to look forward to. And then at the end of the month, we're going to come back to our family series and talk about divorce and remarriage. And, uh, but that's what you got to look forward to when we get into, uh, April here. But again, that's been G220 radio for tonight. I hope you enjoyed the program. Yeah, you know, leave us a comment. Uh, let us know what you thought about what was said here tonight. Um, and where can they find you, um, Steve? Yeah, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called Born Again R, and it's all one word. And you can message me on uh, YouTube is, or on Facebook as well, that's, or on Twitter. That's the best way uh, to do it. And as far as my book, uh, if you want to get it, uh, um, Why Protestant Bibles Are Smaller, it's on Amazon. And I do, and I do talk about purgatory in there too, by the way. Yeah. All right. So that's G220 radio for tonight. Until next time, God bless and good night.